Take your Bibles, turn back with me to Matthew, chapter number 26. So good to see each of you here this morning. I want to bring you a message that I've entitled today, Betrayed by a Friend. At some point in life, you may have experienced the pain of betrayal. Someone you thought you could trust turned against you. Perhaps it was a spouse, someone you called a friend, an employer, a co-worker, a classmate, even a family member. Betrayals wound deeply, but they never wound as much as when a person betrays you to your face. The setting before us this morning is in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's on the Mount of Olives, just outside of Jerusalem. Jesus has just spent a few agonizing hours in prayer, and he has found the strength and the peace necessary for him to face the events that are yet to come. This morning we look at Jesus as he confronts his betrayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. There are many names that are disgraced forever because of the actions of those in the past. They are for all time regarded as synonymous with betrayal or treachery, such as Benedict Arnold in United States history. Or, but there's no name, perhaps, that's more despised than Judas Iscariot. I want you to look with me, first of all, at the nature of betrayal. And we see that Jesus here is met by a multitude, and we begin looking in verse number 47. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Well, Matthew tells us that it is a great multitude that went out to, with Judas to capture Jesus. But John, in his account, tells us that Pilate sent a detachment of troops along with the Pharisees and the temple police. The word that is translated detachment is very specific. It was a military term which meant a Roman cohort. It was one-tenth of a legion, or 600 men. Now, of course, a cohort is not always at full strength, but the num- and the number can vary from time to time and place to place. But what you need to understand is that it clearly means there was a very great number of soldiers that went with Judas and the chief priest to arrest Jesus. And notice he is betrayed by a kiss, verse 48. Now, his betrayer had given them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one... Seize him. Immediately went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? And they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Now Jesus had arranged with the religious leaders to identify Jesus by a kiss. Jesus said, according to John chapter 10 and verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Someone pointed out, Jesus kissed the door to heaven. 
yet he never got in. Judas was associated as a follower of Jesus. In fact, he was one of the twelve. He was sent out on the same mission as the other disciples. He had an association. He even had a participation. But he didn't have salvation. You can be associated with the church. Be a church member and still not be saved. You can have participation. You can work and you can serve until you're worn to a frazzle and you still doesn't mean you're saved. Could Judas have been saved? I think he could, but he wasn't. The second thing that I want you to see this morning is the response to the betrayal. First of all, in verse number 51, it says, And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, Put your sword in its place, for all will take the sword, will perish by the sword. There's two responses here that we'll look at. First of all, there's Peter's response in the first two verses here. Apparently, Judas's betrayal of Jesus with the kith was about more than, than Peter could stand. It says, Suddenly, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. All of the Gospels accounts tell us of this incident, but only John tells us that it was Simon Peter who was the one uh, who took, drew the sword and cut off the man's ear. That really shouldn't surprise us. Man, as Simon Peter was so impulsive, it shouldn't surprise us at all. Luke tells us that the servant of the high priest was a man named Malchus. Out Peter came with a short sword and he took a swing at the nearest man. Either his intended victim ducked or the sword was deflected by a helmet, but either way all that Peter managed to do was cut off the poor man's ear. Now Peter wasn't trying to cut off his ear. He was trying to split his skull. He just missed. I hope that he was a better fisherman than he was a swordsman because as one man commented, his zeal outran his skill. Peter made about every mistake possible. He fought the wrong enemy. He used the wrong weapon. He had the wrong motive. And he accomplished the wrong result. But before we get pious, I want you to think about, have you ever tried to help Jesus get something accomplished in your life? Have you ever tried to help Jesus in the wrong way? Well, if you tried to help Jesus, you tried to help him in the wrong way. The problem is that by trying to accomplish the work of the Spirit and the power of the flesh, you remember that Moses made that similar mistake over at Exodus chapter 2. He was going to free the people of Israel in his own power. He ended up killing an Egyptian and fleeing for his life. But Peter made three grave mistakes that night. First, he fought the wrong enemy. He thought the enemy was the men who had come to carry out the arrest. And so he fought back. Malchus wasn't his enemy. He was just a servant of the high priest who was doing his job. And as Christians, we sometimes think we're in a physical fight against physical foes. 
And if we're not careful, we'll spend all of our energy fighting against people who are not our enemies. And we'll end up being used by our enemy. The Apostle Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness and heavenly places. Our battle isn't against other people. Our battle is against the, is Satan and his demons. Peter made a second mistake when he used the wrong weapon. Jesus told Peter to put away his sword. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnable. Mighty in God for pulling down of strongholds. Peter was mistaken in that he relied on a carnal weapon to achieve a spiritual victory. The final mistake that he made was that he was motivated by the wrong attitude. He was angry. Ever done anything because you were angry? He was angry that they were attacking his Lord. And so he jumped forward to defend Jesus. And at this point, Jesus says to Peter in verse 52, Put your sword away, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. One of our problems in our day is that we have a lot of angry Christians who think that it is their job to draw their swords and defend Jesus. But the Bible says in James 1, 19 and 20, Be slow to speak, slow to anger, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Your anger and God's righteousness generally move in opposite directions. You ever, you ever been listening to a radio talk show when a Christian calls in and he's so angry that he's spouting off and swinging his verbal sword without thinking about the damage that he may be causing? I'm so glad that the national election is over because some of the comments that were made on Facebook and elsewhere by some Christians were so mean-spirited that it made me ashamed to admit that I agreed with them in principle. When unbelievers hear Christians respond in such a fashion, they think, well, if that's what Christianity is all about, no thank you. If someone or someone is responsible for a predicament in our lives, especially if we're going through a pressure-filled situation, you may want to draw your sword, so to speak, to fight back, to lash out in anger. If no one is apparently responsible, well, somebody needs to be responsible. So you may want to lash out at someone, anyone, to satisfy your anger. And when you strike with your sword... You usually leave behind a bloody mess. What did Peter do here? What was the cause of his mistake? Peter was mistaken because of a lack of spiritual preparation. He was sleeping when he should have been praying. Jesus had told him and the two other disciples who were with him in the Garden of Gethsemane, that they were there to watch and pray. 
so that they would not fall into temptation. But Peter failed to prepare himself for the challenges that he would face. That was Peter's response. Now look at, look at Jesus' response. And you'll need to turn to John chapter 18 for just a moment. John chapter 18, verses 3 and 4. First, we're going to look at a demonstration of his power. I don't want you to come away thinking that Jesus was merely overpowered. There are 600 some odd soldiers and people here with swords and clubs. and Maybe Jesus was just overpowered. He had no choice. Well, John makes sure that we know that that is not the case. That he wants us to understand just how in control Jesus was. It says, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Who are you seeking? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. And now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. They'd gone out in the middle of the night with their torches and their weapons to arrest a poor country preacher who they expected to be hiding in some dark corner of the Garden of Gethsemane. Instead, they're confronted by a commanding figure who steps forth and demands to know what their business is. Here's the point I don't want you to miss in this passage. When he says, I am he, you miss it in the English. It is literally in the Greek Ego, I, me. It is literally, I am. The he is added just so that we will understand who is being talked about. This is the same phrase that is used in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14 when Jehovah God describes who he is. He says, I am, and when he says, I am, he's saying, I am Jehovah. I am God. His words are a gracious and powerful warning to these individuals that they're in way over their head here. Now, don't miss what John is saying in verse 6. John does not say that the soldiers momentarily pause in their efforts to arrest Jesus, but rather that they actually stepped backwards and fell to the ground at the words of Jesus. When he made I, the I am statement, the soldiers fell backwards to the ground, and, and in doing this, he showed them actually how powerless they were. Even with all their numbers and their swords and their spears, and the power that sent them crashing backwards onto the ground could have just as easily held them there. It's rather ludicrous, if you stop to think about it, that men, puny men with puny weapons, come to arrest the Son of God Himself. They came with weapons expecting trouble, and they were right to be worried. But had He chosen to resist, no weapons would have been sufficient. Jesus wants to make through John, wants us to be sure to understand that up to and including the moment that he gave himself up to the soldiers, Jesus was very much in control. 
If Jesus could stun an entire army, he certainly had the power to remove himself from any situation. Turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 22 and verse 51. I want you to see the second thing, and that is a demonstration of compassion. According to Luke's account, Jesus touched Malchus's ear and restored it completely. Jesus didn't have to do that. Jesus not only showed his power and authority over the situation, but he also displayed his mercy and his compassion, and that it extended even to those who sought to arrest him. Now, if we return to our text this morning in verse number 53, Jesus wants us to understand that he was not taken against his will. He states in verse 53, Or do you not think that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he will provide for me more than twelve legions of angels? Now, that's one of those things you just read. You think, well, that's good. But you never stop to consider what's being said. There was never a time during the entire arrest when he was not completely in control. He was not a victim of an angry mob. He was a willing sacrifice for sin. Jesus said that his father could send him more than 12 legions of angels. A legion was a word used by the Roman army that meant 6,000 soldiers. So 12 legions would be 72,000 soldiers, 72,000 angels. Now, How much damage could 72,000 angels do? Well, I don't know, but I'll give you a little brief synopsis of what could happen. If you want to see the destructive capability and power of a single angel, then all you need to do is look back at King Hezekiah in 2 Kings chapter 19 and verse 19. The king of Assyria came, surrounded Jerusalem. The Israelites were outnumbered. The king of Assyria publicly taunted King Hezekiah and he blasphemed God. Hezekiah went into the temple, and when sackcloth and ashes, he prayed this prayer before God. He says, O Lord our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all kingdoms on the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. God answered by sending a single angel, one angel, who decimated the entire Assyrian army. The next morning, there were 185,000 dead Assyrians. Now, you want to do a little angelic math? If one angel could do that, 185,000 soldiers, that means that 72,000 angels could kill 13.2 billion soldiers. That's more than double the population of the earth. And at the point when Jesus spoke this, only one billion people inhabited the earth. To put it very plainly, Jesus could have said, I brought you into this world, I can take you out. 
He could have completely done away with the population of the world. He was in control. The third thing I want you to see is the purpose of the betrayal. Verse 54, how then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I said daily with you, teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Jesus tells the religious leaders, I hate to tell you this, but your motives are real obvious. He says, I sat every day publicly in the temple and taught, and you did not arrest me. You could have arrested me at any time as I did so. Yet you have come against me in the middle of the night. Isn't it a bit much that you have come with a huge group of swords and clubs? You've come to as if you're going to seize a group of armed revolutionaries. But unbeknownst to you, your arresting me is fulfillment of Scripture. Even this is in God's plan. Fourth and final thing this morning, the consequences of his betrayal. Judas had to live with what he had done. We read later that Judas regretted, that is, he was filled with remorse by what he did, but he never repented of what he did. After the cross, he went back and he tried to give the money back, but they refused. Then, instead of waiting with the other disciples to ask for forgiveness of his sins, Judas went out and committed suicide. Notice with me, two consequences of betrayal in the life of Judas, his despair. Then Judas' betrayer, verse number 3 of chapter number 27, seeing they had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Matthew tells us that once Jesus was arrested and condemned, that Judas began to have pangs of remorse over what he had done. Now, if you have the King James Version, you'll find that it used the words repented. But the word that is translated repented means remorse or regret. Judas was never truly repentant. Oh, he was sorry for the mess he had gotten himself into, but he was not repentant. His remorse led him to take the money, which had been so important to him, and cast it at the feet of the religious leaders and say, I have betrayed innocent blood. He realized that he had sinned, but recognition of sin is only part of the process. He was consumed with sorrow, but it was worldly sorrow, sorrow for himself. Unfortunately, it was not sorrow that led to genuine repentance. It was sorrow that led to self-pity, and self-pity which led to self-destruction. 
And finally his death in verse 5. And then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went out and hanged himself. I think we should take notice that Satan often uses people. He uses Judas for his purposes and then he discarded him like a piece of trash. When Judas saw that he couldn't undo what he had done, he went out and in the act of ultimate self-pity, he committed suicide by hanging himself. Every sermon, every miracle he witnessed, every kindness ever expressed to him by Jesus was a call from Jesus to repent of sin and believe in him. When Jesus dipped the bread into the wine and handed it to Jesus at their last meal together, it was yet another opportunity for him to repent and turn from the path that he was on. But Judas climbed over every obstacle that God placed in his path in order to remain lost and bound for hell. As hard as it is for us to conceive, that is true of every individual who does not make it to heaven. They, make it, they do not make it to heaven because they've climbed over every obstacle that Jesus has put in their path to lead them to the right place. They've had individuals in their lives who have spoke to them of their need. They have the scripture. They've heard the word of God presented. And every obstacle that is there, they've climbed over in order to keep on the path that they're on. Now, what happened in Gethsemane was not a tragedy. Now, neither are our Gethsemane experiences. You remember that phrase means the press. Certainly, we all have times in our lives when we feel pressed. But it's an encouragement that even in those days, those things that we regard as tragedies, there stands behind that the benevolent and wise purpose of our loving Heavenly Father. The circumstances of our lives may be dark at times, and we can feel that we are all but lost and crushed by the experiences of life. But this is not the end. God is in control. Man may intend evil, but God will use it for your good. Let's pray. Father, none of us like hard times. None of us like trials. None of us like to feel that we're pressed. Certainly when we are going through those difficulties, it's hard for us not to look at those dark and difficult days and be discouraged and depressed. Help us to realize that even those dark days, you're still in control that you've never lost control of this universe that you've created, and that we, as your children, understand that you have a purpose in life for us. Even the dark and difficult times have a purpose in our lives. Father, if there's one here this morning that is <clears throat> going through a difficult time, pressure of, a, of life seems intense. I pray that they would understand this morning that you're still in control that, that you've never taken your hand off of their lives there may be one here this morning that has never turned their life over to you 
And they've recognized perhaps this morning that uh, they haven't done so good with having control of their lives themselves. They recognize that they're sinners and they can't save themselves. I pray that they'd also recognize that Jesus has already done everything necessary, that he's paid the penalty for our sins on the cross of Calvary, and that all we have to do is accept that payment. There's one in that condition this morning that I pray that you'd help them to use this time to make things right in their lives. Father, I pray that whatever it is that you want to accomplish in our lives, that we'd be able to turn this time over to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.